0: A new song. How many people have heard that before? No one might guaranteed that, and his guarantee came true. No one had heard it before. Um, I'm going to tell you a little. We're going to go behind the scenes of deserts and church. Does that mean what? we get to part the curtain? No, that was last week. If you weren't here, you missed it. (laughs) Um, Can I tell you a secret about how we design our service? The worship and often the thoughts in the worship are meant to connect us back to the week before. So that we remember the themes and the last week message, and that it helps connect church service to church service, especially when we're in a series. So instead of doing that wonderful song about being a child last week when we spoke about being a child, we do the wonderful song about being a child this week, and it connects our minds back to the truth so that the. the um, the truths of last week are not forgotten. They have staying power. It is part of how we help, try to help, our own memory as we continue on in a series. So people design their service all kinds of different ways. That's part of how we try to design our worship. Um, and that's why you had a song. And my, one of my children whispered to me, that song is kind of like your sermon last week. And I was like, yes. Yes, you got it. And I thought, well, if my kids got it, maybe everybody got it. And, um, but now I'm just telling you that we all got it. Okay, so uh, we're in Matthew 18. Do you want to, yes, yeah, so if anybody needs Bibles, raise your hand. Kevin is going to be... Bible man and as you raise your hands, I'm gonna pray here in just a minute. We're gonna tie some thoughts to scripture, but this is gonna be like uh like just a flow, a river of thoughts over your head. This is gonna be I, I I fear it's almost random but they're going to be tied to the passage and it's just going to be thoughts. And so I say this to say, you might have to grab your own thought for you. You might have to grab your own application from the verses. The Holy Spirit might have to bring you understanding. And if there are things you don't understand, it's potluck week, you can ask me. Because we are going to roll through a whole bunch of Scripture and I'm going to comment on it but there's lots of thoughts here that I'm just gonna skip. The reason I'm skipping is I want us to see a flow of thought through these verses, and I can't help you see a flow of thought unless we do more than uh, more verses than we normally do. Because last week we did three verses, and that's just a uh, a little small to understand an argument. And so we're going to roll from there. So, if you're in Matthew 18, you are in the right spot, and we'll start reading right after I pray here. Well, Father, I come before you, and I have no idea how um, many verses we'll get through here. But Father, we thank you for the truths we recognize today. That that You are here with us, and that You are a teacher who is here with us. That You are among Your church, and that we don't need anyone to teach us, because Your Holy Spirit teaches us. So we look to You and ask for Your help and encouragement in teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, This is Jesus, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was the passage for last week, and one of the things we learned is that all believers are children. The Bible calls believers children. And that Jesus is talking to the disciples and saying, in the kingdom of God, there is no room for pride and human-centeredness. And that you should humble yourself like a child to enter the kingdom. And the, that word humble there, it, it's kind of close to the word humiliate. Humiliate. It's interesting. So it's like telling us, hey, humiliate yourself like a child. And I think, well, what does that mean? I think it means to accept a low status. Children submit to an adult world that knows best, and we submit to a world in which God knows best. And in the relationships with each other, we, we take a low place and in our relationship before God, we take the low, humble place. Let's keep going. Whoever receives, verse 5, whoever receives one such child in My name receives Me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin receives It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. As we read this section, Jesus makes a shift. He's talking about children to his disciples, but then he's going to change and talk about children as all believers. That little phrase in there in these verses, because these little ones who believe in me. See, if you believe in Jesus, you're a little one. You're a disciple. It's all who have entered the kingdom through that small door. That small door of humility. Those who change and become like little children. And verse 5 says, one such child. One such child. What does that mean? To, to understand what it's talking about, one such child, you have to go back to verse 4. And he's talking about one who humbles himself like a child. So everyone who humbles himself is the one such child. And if that one such child is led into sin, so we're not talking about leading five-year-olds into sin only we are talking about causing other believers who have entered into the kingdom and are children of God, causing them to stumble. Now, it talks about he who receives, the little child receives me. And it makes me think of this verse a couple pages back in Matthew 10, that you can either turn there or I'll read to you in verse 40. It says this, "...whoever receives you..." Talking to the disciples. Talking to the apostles. Matthew 10, verse 40. "...whoever receives you, receives Me. And whoever receives Me, receives Him who sent Me. The one who receives a prophet, because He is a prophet..." will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. There are people that are, seem important in the kingdom that are important in the kingdom. And that you're rewarded for helping them, for receiving them, for. You receive a prophet. You get a prophet's reward. Righteous people, prophets, apostles. And you feel good to do that. But Jesus in Matthew 18, he's saying the way we treat. The lowly ones, the ones with less status, the nobodies, when we welcome them, when we receive them, it's like we receive Jesus himself. So Jesus identifies with all believers, but he's saying he especially is represented by the low in status. He especially identifies the low in status, represent Jesus. It reminds me of this verse in Luke 25. Um, Do you have that? Awesome. Here, let's turn to it. Luke 25. Wait, there isn't a Luke 25. That's why you put Luke 24. That's why. That's why. Okay. Matthew 25. That's okay. That was my fault. talking about the judgment. And Jesus says this, The king will say to those on his right, the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Is that word again welcomed, received. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it, For me, the smallest in the kingdom of God, the most needy in the kingdom of God represent Him. So to welcome them is to welcome Jesus. Jesus is giving a standing to certain people that outplaces their standing in the world or in the community. The last is indeed first. Now, do those low in status include children? Of course they do. But we're talking about a wider characterization of people. It's a welcome to all who take this posture of a lowly place. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The Bible talks about welcoming the unimportant, receiving, talking to, loving, inviting to your parties, having equal concern for those in the church. Verse after verse talks about this in the church. You cannot love God without loving the church The thought line in Matthew 18 continues. Verse 6. We're going to repeat reading this verse. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come What do we pull out of this? It's kind of simply Jesus hates sin. He hates deception and lies and pride and the sins of the eyes and oppression and favoritism and insubordination. And there's that if you cause another brother to stumble, say some verses, or another brother to sin. You know, some commentators have said, man, this is a really hard, it's really harsh. And so this must mean causing a believer to completely lose faith. That's causing that much damage that they just lose their connection with God, their relationship with God altogether. And you can follow that line of thought, except I can't find anything in the text that would make me think that's true. It may really be that we don't understand how much Jesus hates sin. We look at the penalty. It's so great. Oh, maybe we don't understand how much you hate it, Jesus. Maybe we don't understand how much destruction sin causes. The depth of evil it has brought to us in the world. But then Jesus goes on and He talks about sin in our own life. If if you have sin in your own life, there are dangers. And so, he's saying, take drastic action. And I think, I'll sin in my own life, but, but you and I don't live on an island. The sin in my own life doesn't just affect me, it affects the people around me. It affects my church. And Jesus says, if you look inside yourself and you see sin as a problem, Jesus is saying, be radical in the elimination of that sin. Rigorous self-discipline. Faith, prayer, pleading, other people, accountability, fasting. Jesus is making very strong points and the very strong point here is He really cares about sin. And I also get this, that we're really vulnerable as a people. We're like a child. We affect one another for good and for evil we are the little ones little ones that put our faith in Jesus but our trust in Jesus can be damaged and so we 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 can be around each other and we can cause each other to sin and we doubt and lose faith there can be unfair criticism there can be we discourage others people may be in a place and they receive lack of Pastoral care, there might be failure to forgive in relationships. And in verse 10 here, we're going to read it in a minute, Jesus calls, he says, despising of a believer. It's like the opposite of receiving. Despising a little one. And I think the despising, I think if I were to define it, I would say it's it's seeing them as not worth much. And when you see someone else because of your own self-centeredness as someone else is not worth much or not worth the time or not, then then you are now open to these other things that cause others to sin. I think about it. He, Jesus doesn't tell us the punishment. He says it would be better if they just were drowned in the sea with a millstone around their neck. And, but he doesn't actually tell us what the punishment is. He just says it's worse than that. Causing spiritual damage to each other. Causing spiritual damage that affects eternal things. Jesus is saying that's worse than a capital offense and that's so strong it's, it's Jesus understanding the world and the spiritual world and sin and eternity and, and all these things and he says these really strong things and we don't think that way Jesus is telling us of the dangers of causing spiritual damage to each other So it's horrible for the offender. But he says that the stumbling blocks in verse 7, they come from the world. The temptations to sin come from the world. So he's saying the world is dangerous. Thinking like the world is dangerous. The temptations that come from the world. But he doesn't say they come from divine purpose. That they're coming from God. They don't say they're coming from God to test you. Jesus doesn't say they're along the path of life. He says they come from the world. The natural state of the world. Because we're here, there will be temptations to sin. And we can't blame God for those because they come from the world. And in verse 8, your hand causes you to sin. Your eye causes you to sin. I don't think this is limited. We're talking about human sinfulness. Makes me just think about the question for each of us. Makes me think about the question for my own life. What sin am I rooting out? What sin in me... Am I trying to hack to pieces? Jesus speaks and he's speaking here about eternal things. He's talking about hellfire. And then how do I put these pieces together? You know, eternity is for people that make God king. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And we walk into salvation because we trust Grace that we can't do it on our own. We're not going to do it on our own. Jesus is going to grant us the righteousness and the grace and the forgiveness. Hallelujah. But what does it mean to follow God? What does it mean to be on a a path with God that He's going to lead us through that ends with... Us being in heaven. What does it mean to follow Him? What, what Jesus is telling us what, what to expect as we follow Him. And what will following Him entail? Following Him will entail rooting out sin. Okay, let's read verse 10 through 14. So it is not the will of My Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It is the natural way of the world to despise little ones. To not take them seriously. To not take their interests as priority. Jesus is really attacking the value of the rat race. And those who are easily despised on earth have angels that that are in the courts of God, that look on the face of God, and they they go and and take the case of the despised ones before God. And this is where certain this is where we get the idea of, of guardian angel. An angel that takes your case as a little one, as a disciple, maybe even as a, if a despised one before before God. Now, you don't see an angel representing one person really anywhere else in Scripture. We see angels representing nations. We see angels representing churches. We see angels coming to bring deliverance when deliverance is needed. We see Hebrews tells us that angels are sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And so, so I think that's true. But nothing that like connects an individual to an individual angel. So when I think of this verse, I think probably there's a general connection. That angels are there to bring the cases of the little ones before God. To bring the cases of the despised ones before God. That it's more of a general angels do this and it's part of their role. Not necessarily that there's a guardian angel, though we don't know. But those that would believe in guardian angels would point to this verse. So this is as close as we get to having a verse. We think about Jesus leaving the ninety-nine to go after the one, and and having someone leave to lose one is serious. And Jesus is a shepherd. He distinguishes himself in John 10 from a hired hand. Because one who has wandered off is easy prey. Wolves, thieves, and they have to be recovered before it's too late. And, and part of what is emphasized here is the joy when they're found. Not because they're better than the other 99, but because Jesus had so much concern for the one that wasn't among the flock anymore. And of course, in Luke 15, there are people that didn't appreciate that joy. That there were those that were found. If one member of a community is in spiritual danger, our community, if one member is in spiritual danger, action must be taken to win them back. To do so, to take that action and win them back, is to share in the pastoral concern of God. God, the shepherd. So I think, well, what is the heart of God? And I love this passage In Ezekiel, about the heart of God as the shepherd, and I'd like to read it with you guys. It's um, a number of verses long here. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture, They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I love it. I love it. It reminds me of Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down and brings me peace. All right, let's move on to verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and every, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth actually we won't go that far yet just through verse 17 so the thought in this verse flows naturally we're talking about someone who has wandered away so now in that same theme what to what do you do if you see someone is in spiritual danger because of sin See, this is the practical outworking of the pastoral care of God. Of the shepherding concern. Because it is through sin that, that people are destroyed. That people wander away from Jesus. That... And, and this passage is talking about well, let's say this. When it talks about somebody leaves the 99 to go get the one, it's talking about an individual. The word you in that passage, is an all, it's all an individual you. But when we get to this passage, there's something different that comes. There's a collected. It says, it's as if they don't listen to you, tell it to the church. Tell it to the community. Now we're talking about authority that's a communal authority. However, it starts with an individual. An individual act. This is not a passage for church leaders. An individual goes and shows him another individual in the church his fault. It doesn't refer to leaders. Those who have a concern. See, it moves to the community. It would move to the leaders to help move the community only if the one-on-one conversation proves inadequate. So some of you know this, this passage and, and others like it is, is sort of a, a progression in which we walk through to um, where someone could be under church discipline. And what we have taught more extensively on that in other places, but I'll just say that I've been around or a part of or led a, a, a number of these where there is someone... Maybe who is having an affair. And a group of people, one person, and then another person, and then a couple people together, and then a different set of people, and then maybe a wider community of people, bring this person right up to the edge because they don't want to make this decision to end this relationship. Because there's care, because this is in his heart, and you bring him right up to the point where you're like you will lose fellowship in the Church of God. And that and that helps bring repentance. And there's a repentance and there's a change and there's pushing away of sin. But they would not have come to that unless they were brought right up to the edge of something they might lose. There's only two instances in my 28 years of ministry um, where someone would not repent. And and we kind of walked out all, all of this section of verses where we treated them as a Gentile. We'll get to what that means. And and one of them was in this church and yet i am still yearly once a year give or take in in conversation with that person to say are you are you ready to repent because this heart these this section of the verses is to help eradicate sin and the, dest- and the sin that destroys people from the church. And I have seen it through my 28 years. It is a great blessing to make things clear for people. Make clear the seriousness of sin. Some other things to notice. The words used here or brother, sister. If you see a brother, if you see a sister, we're talking about believers. We're talking about the spiritual family of God. And the motivation for approaching someone is spiritual concern for them. Uh, Because we understand the destructive nature of sin. And to go to a person is risky. Because they could object. And often, we have this thought that goes, oh, that's not really my problem. And this is, if that's you, you can write down this verse. It's Leviticus 19.17. It says this, Rebuke your neighbor, so you will not share in his guilt. Makes me think, sometimes we see sin in each other. And sometimes you see sin and because you see sin, now you're responsible to do what is right with what you see or what you know. You're responsible for that knowledge. And and rebuke your neighbor. Or you will share in the guilt. We have a concern for one another. The church we're talking about here is the local church. And we are not talking about leaders. To, to do something as an entire church, the leaders have to be involved. But the re, the, the, as this walks into, into more, closer and closer to church discipline, the thing that changes is the amount of people that disapprove of the activity. There's an ostracization that comes for the group. The group, the, the church, shares a, a concern for the person. I say this because what we can sometimes do is hide behind the authority structure of the church. We can leave everything to the pastors, to the leaders, and we can say, well, that's not my problem. I see that in this person's life, but that leader should do it or that person should do it. And we are basically asking the question, am I my brother's keeper? Like Cain did. And Cain thought the answer to that question was no. I am not my brother's keeper. But Jesus is telling us here that the answer is yes. We're in a community of little ones in which we have some responsibility for watching over each other for helping each other for the spiritual welfare of one another and so Matthew's church is not a formal one it is not a place where all the care and all the shepherding and all the love and all the correction and all the direction is done by the pastor that's not that's not the church Jesus is communicating that's not the church Matthew is, is, is helping us see through Jesus' words. When it, says, when it says we go talk to someone about sin, we're not really talking about sin against you. We're just talking about sin. Sin you see. We're not talking about conflict resolution. It's sin that affects the person that is damaging the other person. And it may be damaging the church wider. But it's just a sin that should be rooted out. In those conversations where you go to someone and you say, hey, you're on this road and I see this road and this road's going to end. There's going to be bad fruit and you're not going to want to eat that fruit. And Jesus wants you on this road so that you can eat good fruit. Sin in discipleship should be rooted out. And I love this passage because it says it should be done sensitively. One person having another conversation with one person. Others aren't brought in unless... Conversations go poorly. Minimum pli- publicity. The principle here is minimum exposure. The ideal solution is just between the two of you. And then you have gained your brother. I think the thought is that you, you are maybe in danger of losing your brother. <laughs> To sin, to who knows what, but now you have gained them. This passage is about the spiritual health of individuals, not the, we must keep the corporate church sinless. It's about the spiritual health of us as we care for one another. And I like that when it gets wider, it's done publicly. I love it. No gossips, no whispers. The offender can even be there to listen. And then, when they walk to that line of not repenting, hardness of heart, the ostracization is as a group. And it says that you treat the person as a gentile or a tax collector which which really which really means in the in the kind of the jewish mind that you kind of you refused table fellowship right jews do not go into gentile houses and eat there there was a, a disassociation this person was became low on the moral scale All for the goal of repentance for the good, for the eradication of sin. Okay, let's keep going. 18 through 20. Truly I say to you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Well, Those are nice verses, but the question is, how do they relate? I think these verses are talking about authority in church discipline. There is authority given to the church in dealing with sin, in discipline. And so when we're talking about tying and untying and loosening and those words, we're talking about what is permitted and what is not permitted in the church. What is repentance and what is not repentance in the church? And Jesus is saying that when a community of people, when the church comes to a decision about what is permitted and not permitted, that God's will is involved in that decision. That those decisions are, are God's will. What they corporately declare to be sin, God also disallows. So that church leaders, that people that pray, that groups of people in line, with a, 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 in line with the Bible make decisions. Now, how do a group of people have that kind of authority? I think verses 19 and 20 show how, what gives them that authority. The authority they have is in an agreeing community in prayer. So you can imagine a group of people praying for this sinning brother, this erring brother, this wandering away person, this hard-hearted one, and they are praying what is good and how, what do we help and what do we do and how do we walk out this process and how do we proceed? And it is because they're praying together to God with Jesus, coming to unity, God says he is involved in that process enough that when they speak, they are speaking the will of God. So it doesn't mean that whatever this group of people decides for, for their little community, that God sanctions anything they can decide. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying the presence of Christ is with his followers. Together, God is with us. And he says, There's even two or three together, disciples praying, God is there And Jesus is among us and so we pray and Jesus prays with us and Jesus leads our prayers and Jesus remains present on the earth with his brothers and sisters and we are not just followers of Christ together. We are companions of Christ together. And his presence among us is the reason for our authority. His presence among us is the reason we can expect any prayer to be answered his presence among us is how we we can stand and believe that we're declaring the will of god his presence among us and that's a community that's a plurality no decision around here is ever made by one person there's a plurality and it's two or three before god in prayer our missional communities are all led by more than one person. There is, a, there is a safety in that. There is a biblical precedent for that. Because the presence of God is promised to any two of His disciples that are meeting. It's amazing. It is amazing. We should close. How are we to treat one another? Hey, we all matter. Jesus is among us, and we should watch over each other to help us keep us away from sin. Encourage one another as long as it is called today, so that we would not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're in, a passage, we're in a passage where Jesus is teaching things to His... or series where we're talking about what Jesus teaches His disciples. What is He teaching them? What does He want them to get? And in and, and the, and the first few weeks, wow, we saw faith and then we saw trust and, and we walked into seeing humility and walking in through a, a small door. But now... We're continuing where we see, oh, equal concern for others in the church, how we treat one another in sin, caring for others in the church, that God wants to root out sin in our lives. And these are all things that we strive for together. That's what discipleship is. That's what following Jesus is. That's what's on the path that is salvation. That's what it entails. And as we walk us or walk people that they're not sure about the Christian life or what it is or how to follow Jesus, these are the themes we communicate to the people or communicate to people. These are the things we can strive for together. Together. And that's the design of the church. To strive for these things together. Let's pray. <laughs> so amazing, Father, that you will take Anyone in salvation, anyone who will bow a knee and declare you God and accept forgiveness of sins because of your sacrifice. Anyone who says that I can't do it, but you have provided a way, you walk into walks into your kingdom. I thank you that you have given us church. It's amazing, Jesus. You even spoke of these things before Your death and resurrection. And Lord, grant us real faith to believe You're among us. Grant us real faith to believe following You is to interact with people in Your church, in a way in which they matter. In a way in which we watch over each other's lives. Grant us that faith. And so Lord, we pray for this potluck, and and this time, and this service, that You would embody our fellowship as You embodied our praises. And You would... And You would be here in Your Spirit, and You, Jesus, through us, would encourage one another and love one another and correct one another. And whatever you have for these conversations and for us at the table together. And thank you for the joy that you have given us to be those that came back to your fold, that came back to the 99. Thank you that you are a good shepherd we are glad to be yours today. In Jesus' name, amen.